let's look at the passage found before us again in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 42. As we look at this theme, we looked at firstly membership. Last week we looked at the centrality of the word and, and godly leadership. And today we're going to be looking at fellowship. Acts 2, 37 to 42. The title of this message, God's New Holy Ground. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can't thank you enough for the word, your precious word, this inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word, how it speaks to our hearts, how it quickens us, how it enlightens us. Indeed, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We bless you for it. And we pray that today the Holy Spirit, once again, who inspired these words would and make them clear to us. I pray this in the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord. Amen. You've heard the words, um, and they're quite common in Christian circles. We're going to spend some time in fellowship. What does that mean? People usually head downstairs at the end of a gathering and have some coffee and maybe some cake or a meal and spend time together chatting. And, um, and we feel good. You know, after we spend some time together chatting, we go home and, and we're, we've been uh, fellowshipping, at least so we think. And that's our topic today. Is that really what fellowship means? Uh, we've already considered membership and that there are no loose marbles in the church. Every member is interconnected one to another. And we become members the moment we are baptized in what? We are members of a local body. We are members of the body of Christ because the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body and therefore we are now part of the church. We are living stones. We are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen race, a holy nation. This happens the very moment the Spirit of God baptizes us into the body of Christ. But with water baptism, we become members of a local body. We saw that. Last week, we looked at the meaning of devoted to the word and how the early church um, was not into entertainment. It wasn't, it wasn't a church that followed anecdotes. They wanted teaching from God's word. That is a symptom of new birth. We saw how the apostles dedicated themselves to teaching the word of God. Their only authority was God's word. And they were accompanied, their ministry was accompanied by the Spirit of God. Now, if you look at the church, 
at the early church was powerless. It had no clout, no influence. In fact, to be a Christian was dangerous. People ended up in prison. They ended up tortured. They lost their homes, their jobs. This happened regularly. This happened for about 300 years. And then when Constantine became a Christian, he imposed Christianity on the empire. Overnight, the entire empire became Christian. And then the church started to have power, not authority, power. During the Middle Ages, the church had become so powerful that one third, one third of all of Europe belonged to the church. Every king that was appointed was appointed by the church. The countries feared the Pope and the Vatican. They were under his iron fist. Now, how did some, a church that was literally powerless and had no clout whatsoever grow to that kind of power? How did it happen? It happened because they left the authority of God's word and they fell in love with power. As pastors, we do not have power. We don't control people. No servant of God is called to control others. We are called to serve for the sake of Christ, not to manipulate and not to control. When a servant resorts to manipulation and control of other people's lives, of their families, then what you have is a corruption of the ministry. And that's what happened to the church until the Reformation. At the Reformation, the word of God took its rightful place. And all those who wanted to be free from the clinging, controlling power of the church, all they had to do is place themselves under the authority of God's word. Because when the word of God comes into your life, you fear no one. You fear no circumstance. You fear no situation. You don't fear a powerful church that had become a behemoth. You do not fear government. You do not fear COVID-19. Your future, your circumstances, nothing. The word of God pushes out all this fear and you begin to fear only God. You begin to be devoted only to God and you love him. That's a healthy Christian. So we see that they had fellowship. Let's go back to the topic. That's what it says in verse 42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, it's a Greek word, koinonia. You may have heard of that word. It appears 19 times in the New Testament, not once in the Old. It's not there. Now, the Old Testament um, does speak about the word fellowship with an offering, fellowship offering, exactly called peace offerings. But that's the only time it appears. It doesn't really have anything to do with fellowship in the New Testament concept. The New Testament concept is totally original, but it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And we find this prophecy in the Psalms. But first, we have to see where fellowship comes from. Who gives birth to fellowship? Who 
where or from whom this fellowship come. It comes from one person and one person alone. First, Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Would you look at that with me? Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And then we're going to read a passage in the Psalms where fellowship was prophesied. The fellowship that we see in the new church. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we read, and this is a doxology that we often say at the end of the gathering, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Fellowship is a fruit that the Holy Spirit brings about. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no fellowship. Now we understand why the Old Testament could not experience fellowship. The Old Testament people, the covenant people, had the law. and The law cannot produce fellowship. It can produce fear because we see God's holy standard. It can reveal our sinfulness because it is a mirror. But it cannot reproduce fellowship. Fellowship is a New Testament phenomenon because the Holy Spirit came into the lives of these believers. And now they're experiencing true fellowship. And as I said, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 133. Psalm 133. And we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Read the entire psalm on your own. It's a beautiful psalm. And, um, and if you look at this psalm, David foresees the day when this would actually take place. This was not taking place during Old Testament times. There was a, a foretaste of it, but it is this happens only with the birth of the church. So Psalm 133 from verse 1, we read, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard as on Aaron's beard, the oil which ran down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for the Lord commanded the blessing there, life forever. So notice it speaks about living together, or other versions says dwelling together. Notice it takes the metaphor of Aaron's anointing when he was anointed as high priest. David likens this fellowship, this koinonia, um, to that moment when Aaron was anointed as high priest. When the oil was poured on his head, it was an aromatic oil. It wasn't just a small dab of oil on his forehead. The oil covered his entire face, down his beard, down his garments, right to the hem of his garments. The entire body was impacted or touched by this oil. And wherever Aaron went, the fragrance of this aromatic oil uh, was powerful. And it, and it just impacted everyone of the two million people that were there. Everyone felt it. Everyone smelled it. It was powerful. And that's what David was alluring to it. That's what the Holy Spirit was speaking about, the day when this would happen. And that is fellowship. It is powerful. 
It's felt by everyone. And just like that day that Aaron was anointed, the church at the day of Pentecost had now true koinonia, the fellowship, the uh, this, this anointing koinonia, this anointing koinonia was so real that the other Jews who were devout and God-fearing and law-abiding sensed it. It stood up. It was different, completely different. So it's more than simply having a coffee and a cake. It's something that is birthed from within by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in the life of the Christian. Basically, what happens is that this is the new holy ground. Remember what God told Moses when he approached the burning bush? Take the sandals off your feet. The ground on which you're standing is holy ground. This is now the new holy ground. It is no longer the temple where everyone thought that was holy ground. So whenever people would come to the temple, they would basically remember, this is God's place. I've come from afar to be in this place where the altar is and where the high priest walks into the Holy of Holies once a year and where the priests daily walk into the holy place to uh, offer incense and where the loaves are changed weekly, the 12 loaves, and, and, and where the candlestick is trimmed every single day. This is the holy place. No more. God is saying, this, the church, is the holy ground. Here is light. Here is bread. Here is the altar. Here is the courtyard. It's right here. No more that building. In 70 AD, that building would be destroyed. And the people of Israel who would be coming year after year from all over the place, the Jews would be coming to celebrate the feast and worship God and, and, and have uh, sacrifices on their behalf offered to God, that would stop. And it's still, it has not uh, been reenacted. There is no sacrifice. There is no temple. That's why they're praying at the Willing Wall. Why? Because God is saying there's a new holy ground. There's a new temple. There is a new place where Psalm 133 has been fulfilled. The church. That's it. Stops there. This is serious stuff. Now, what does fellowship look like? Koinonia, fellowship, is uniquely distinct. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be fabricated. But it has distinctive characteristics. I'm only going to talk about three. There are many more. And I could do series just on fellowship because the word is so rich on this particular theme because it is a New Testament phenomenon. But let's look at the three main characteristics. First, uncommon love for each other. Look at Acts 2, 44 and 45. Acts 2, 44 and 45. Same chapter that we read earlier. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. So here we see the church behaving irrationally. The church behaving irrationally. These Jewish Christians were selling their properties and helping the poor and the needy. Now let's just stay here for a while. Are believers, here's the question, are believers required to sell their properties and live in a commune? Throughout the centuries, after 
the birth of the church, there have been many, many who've done exactly that. They've sold their buildings, they've sold their homes, and they've all lived in a commune. Uh, I've read one individual who wanted to be unencumbered. He was a millionaire. And uh, he sold his $300,000 McLaren. He sold his $5 million home and just gave his money away. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to live with a knapsack. He wasn't a Christian. And then he goes, but where am I going to live? And so he called his friends, gave money to each of them. He says, listen, I'm not going to hold on to anything. I, I'm just, this stuff is just crushing my spirit. Says, so uh, do you mind if I... Uh, sleep over at your place and then I'll sleep over at Jim's place and then maybe a month at uh, Ralph's place. And I said, sure. I mean, they, he made them rich, so why not? But having this guy over was terrible. He would eat all their food. He would stay up late at night. He would just make a mess of their lives. This was not easy to do. So to live in a commune, that's what happens. You're stepping on each other's toes. So many of these Christians eventually stopped even though they had good intentions, they had misinterpreted the passage. That's when we don't rightly divide the word of truth. Now, who are these Christians that were selling their homes, selling their possessions? Who were they? Jews. They were selling their land. This is really an important point to keep in mind. Jews selling their land. Jews would never sell their land, ever. In fact, they fought for the land. And they're in the land right now. And they're never going to give up that land. Because land, for a Jew, is everything. Here's why. Um, I'll show you an example of this. 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. Here we have the story of a man who had a piece of land next to the king's palace. And the king looks out and looks at this piece of land. He goes, you know, this is a nice piece of land. And I want it for myself. I want to have a nice uh, garden here. And I'm just going to plant some zucchinis and some eggplants and some tomatoes. And look out my window and just see my beautiful garden. And just enjoy it. I, I, you know, he must have had some Italian streak in him. So here we have this, this king called Ahab. And uh, this is what he says from verse 2. We read, and Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard so that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house. I will give you a better vineyard in place of it. If you prefer, I will give you what it's worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab the king, the Lord forbid me that I would give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, this was the king. You don't say no to the king for anything. Want a goat? Take my goat. Right? You want sheep? Take my sheep. Want my dog? Take my dog. Want my cattle? Take my cattle. But a God-fearing Jew or a God-fearing Hebrew would never, ever, under any circumstance, give up their land. Why? Look at Numbers. Numbers 36, verse 7. There are many passages, but I'll just read this one for you. Numbers 36, verse 7. Here's the Lord speaking through Moses and telling every Hebrew before Moses passed away, all right? When the inheritance was divided amongst them. This is what God says. Verse 7, so no inheritance of the sons of Israel will be transferred from tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall retain possession 
of the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So what was Naboth doing? He was saying, no, the law does not allow me to do this. You know that. I will not give you for money or in exchange the land that my fathers has passed down to me. So why would the Jews at Pentecost give up their land? It makes no sense. Imagine when Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12. Read that for me, okay? So here's Jesus speaking to Jews. He's on, that's where he lives. He lives in, in Galilee, and he's going back and forth in Judea and Galilee, and he's speaking uh, the words of truth. And he says this in Luke 12 from verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. Well, yeah, we're little. Israel would say, yeah, we're very few. We're not many. Because your fathers has chosen to give you the kingdom. Yeah, we agree with that. That's exactly what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the Messiah to restore the kingdom of Israel. They agreed so far. And then he shocks them. Sell your possessions. And they look, what? What did you say? What was he saying? We know what the law says. What is he saying? Sell your possessions. Give to charity. Make yourselves money belts that do not wear out. And an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor does a moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God is speaking here in the person of the Son and shocking the Jews of his day. They never expected this one. Never. I'm sure they walked away and said, what is he talking about? We're not going to do that. We're not going to give up our land. This land is the kingdom. We're waiting for the Messiah, the king, to come and give glory to the kingdom of Israel. For the Messiah to push out the Romans and all our enemies so we could serve God without any fear in the kingdom. They never expected what Jesus said. Well, so are we to give up our properties? Well, the answer to that is no. And the reason why yeah, is no is because um, God's word says very simply that we are to be generous with our giving, but not to give up our properties. This was a unique situation that happened to the people of Israel. Now, there have been men of God, women of God, that have left everything behind and went on to missions. They've gone to South America, such as Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They gave everything up. C.T. Studd gave up a lucrative career in, um, in uh, cricket. Couldn't remember the sport because it's so unusual. And then went on to be a missionary in Africa. But these, were, these are men and women who were led to do this. These are missionaries. And thank God that we have such men and women. But there is no command in Scripture where we are told to give up our properties. And to all live in a commune. It doesn't exist. So why did this happen? This is descriptive. It is descriptive of a time when people whose eyes were open now to the true kingdom, realizing that the land is not the kingdom, but God's people are the kingdom. And therefore, they gave up these properties that they were clinging on to. They had been fighting for. They tried everything to do to wait for the Messiah. Now they realized the Messiah had come. And it's not land. It's not their property. It's not the tribe. It's different altogether. They just gave them up. They said, hey, I've been fighting for this piece of land for years. 
thousands of years we've been fighting to keep this land. I just understand. It's not the kingdom. The kingdom is the people of God. The people have been reborn. That's the kingdom. They never expected this one, did they? So God doesn't give, tell us to give up property. In fact, if we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read what the Lord does want his people to do. Here's Paul speaking to Timothy. This is a pastoral letter, and he's training Timothy on what to say to the rich, to those who are wealthy, right? Like Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy uh, Christian. Uh, he had slaves, in fact. Onesimus was a runaway slave. And what does Paul tell Onesimus, uh, Philemon? Receive him as you receive me. That's, that's what the gospel is, right? It's not Philemon, sell your home, sell your property, sell your estate, give it all up, and you'll go live in a commune. That's not it. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 to 19. Paul telling Timothy what to tell the rich, what to tell those who have money. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, first, not to be conceited, so we don't get our status from our riches, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So God gives us things to enjoy. So it's okay to enjoy whatever you've been provided. Some of us have less, some of us have more, but we don't set our hearts on these things. Instruct them rather to do good. That's what we are to do with our money. Do good. Secondly, to be rich in good works. Three, to be generous Generosity, be generous, and four, ready to share. Now, as we do this, what happens? Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. In other words, all our giving is recorded by the Lord. Remember what the angel told Cornelius? Your alms have come before God. Your alms are remembered by God. So whenever, whatever good we do in the name of Christ, that is recorded in heaven. So you're treasuring yourself up a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The, the better we hold on to eternal life and the less will be our grasp around temporal things. So we need to constantly ask the Holy Spirit through his word to remind us of these truths. So what is fellowship? What is koinonia? It means uncommon love for God's people who are the true kingdom of God, recognizing them as the new holy ground. That's what happened. Now let's look at something else. Unexpected discipline. It's part of fellowship. Unexpected discipline. It's not just love for God's people. It is also discipline. As this aromatic oil of koinonia, of genuine fellowship, was spreading throughout Jerusalem and Judea, through the Christians that were living out this genuine love. Remember, the government wasn't taking care of the poor, of the orphans and the widow. They were just on their own. Many of them would just be on the street uh, asking for money, asking for alms. So the church said, no more. Don't go on the streets. Don't go begging for money. We will take care of them. In fact, this truth is uh, reminded to Timothy when Timothy is told, take those who are widows and make sure they're taken care of, uh, those who are 60 and over. In other words, those who cannot take care of themselves because the government, the Roman government especially, didn't care about widows. The Roman government loved power. And the Jews were taking care of them so-and-so. But in the Gentile world, there was no concern for widows and orphans and, and the poor. 
So the church was doing this diligently because they loved the Lord. But while they were loving the Lord and loving, therefore, God's people, we need to also realize that what kind, how this was manifesting in a singular life, okay? So let's look at the life of Barnabas. This man was a Levite. We are told in Acts chapter 4 that he was, therefore, of the tribe of Levi, okay? And he was born in Cyprus. His name was Joseph the Levite. But they gave him a surname. And we're going to read this passage and understand why they gave him this surname. So people are giving, right? But then what does Luke do? What does Luke do here? He focuses on one man, one man in particular, this man called Barnabas. He stood out with respect to everyone else. He must have been a very wealthy individual. And here's what he does. For there was not verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each to the extent that they had any need. Now, Joseph, here's this man, Luke is focusing on one man in particular, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, that's a surname, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land. So he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's this Levite who who gets born again and realizes the kingdom is not the land, right? I'm going to sell it. I don't need this land in Jerusalem. There's no need because I know what the kingdom of God is. I know what the new holy ground is. It's not the temple. It's not, the kingdom is not Israel. It's the church. So he sells it and says, let's take care of the church. Let's bless the people of God. This was radical giving, as I said. And, and Barnabas, whose real name was Joseph, shocked the Jewish community, just shocked them. This, this didn't make any sense for all the rest of the Jews there. And Levite giving up his inheritance. If Naboth, who was not a Levite, would never give up his inheritance. Imagine a Levite. Imagine them. They, they're the ones who follow the law strictly. So this was revolutionary. But there was someone who pretended. See, Satan doesn't sit idly by when true fellowship is happening. So what do we have here? In Acts chapter 5 and verse 1 to 6, we read how Satan tried to pollute this fellowship, tried to corrupt the genuine koinonia spoken of and prophesied by David in Psalm 133. Look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died. And great fear came over all who heard about it. The young men got up, covered him up, And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, for years, I would read this passage, 
and think to myself, well, Ananias, let's give around a ballpark figure, gave 90% of his money to the church, and he kept back 10, and God killed him. What about us who barely give 10 and keep 90 for ourselves? What should God do with us? I mean, I thought, I've thought those thoughts, and there may be somebody thinking those thoughts right now. You say, wow. It's because, I, again, I did not read this passage correctly. Ananias and Sapphira did not die because they kept 10% for themselves. That's not the reason why they died. They died because they failed to treat the new holy ground with reverence. That's why they died. And we're going to see this in the story of Achan in the Old Testament. Because Ananias and Sapphira, remember everything that happens in in the New Testament, has a counterpart in the old, all the time, right? If you look at Achan, Achan was a man who lived in the days of Joshua. He's from the tribe of Judah. And Joshua and Israel were about to enter the promised land. They're about to conquer one city after another in Canaan, right? The promised land. They're going to cross the Jordan and then enter the promised land. And God was going to give them one victory after another. But God said something very, very unique to the people of Israel. And it's found in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18 and verse 19. Very unique. Please read this carefully. And this helps us understand the story that of Ananias and Sapphira. Joshua 6, 18 reads, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things designated for destruction. Now God had said, Everything in Jericho, everything is going to be destroyed. You're not going to touch one thing. It's mine. It's not yours. It's the first fruit. It belongs to me. The only thing you will not destroy, and he'll explain, don't covet them. Don't take some of the designated things and turn the camp of Israel into something designated for destruction. I am going to judge Israel if anyone takes anything that he should not be taking. And I'll bring disaster on it. All the silver, all the gold, all the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. So they would be put through fire because these were used as idols and whatnot and and for um, just corrupt practices, debauchery. So they had to be purified in the fire and then taken from the fire and used for what? They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the gold, the silver, all the precious uh, metals, they were going to be purified with fire and brought into the treasury of the Lord for the house of God. Everything else was to be consumed. Everything. Every house, just to destroy everything. It's all gone, right? So this is what happened. God did this, telling Israel to do this, because he's saying the kingdom is going to be purified. It's going to be This is now the holy ground, the land. Like This is their understanding, right, in the Old Testament. Do not fail in this. What happened is that Achan, a leader of the tribe of Judah, he saw the gold, he saw the silver, he saw the bronze, and he struggled, and he struggled, and he he took some, and he goes, you know what, I'll just take a bit. I'll just put it in my little tent here. I have a tent, and and then I'll take a little more board. Anyway, they were going from house to house and just taking stuff and taking stuff. And he just accumulates. No one's going to know. I mean, come on. There's so much here. The rest will go to the house of God. 
I'll just take a little bit. I'm the only one, no problem. Well, what happened is that God knew, obviously. And when they went to battle into A, or I, AI, they, they found defeat. This was a small town compared to Jericho. They were nothing. And they were defeated in front of the people of I. And they were crying. They said, what's going on? What happened? And basically, God judged Israel. And then consequently, when they found out it was I, uh, it was Achan, sorry, they were called to discipline him. And they stoned him to death to purify the people from, from this, uh, this sin. Now, the same thing happens here in the church. Same thing. What did Ananias do? He made a vow. He devoted, because that's what would happen. They would say, I devote the sale and the proceeds of this land to the people of God. The people who are in need here in our midst. You made a vow. Peter said, the money was yours. The land was yours. You could have said, I'll give half. You could, you could have said, give nothing. But what you did is you were irreverent towards the house of God. Just like Achan was irreverent towards the house of God by coveting and then stealing, so Ananias and Sapphira's wife were coveted because after they made the, the vow, they realized, oh my goodness, I think we, you know, we may have gone overboard with our generosity. Who's going to know? We'll just take a bit. Same thing as Achan. We'll just keep it to ourselves. And Peter says, the land was yours. The money was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. Why did you make that vow to the house of God, before the God, rather, for the house of God? This is the new holy ground. This is the new kingdom. And you just go and take, covet and take. He died. That's it. Same thing as Achan in the Old Testament. See, genuine fellowship also includes discipline. There is no discipline, you can't have genuine fellowship. In other words, we can't just love each other and not correct. We cannot just love each other and not uh, rebuke when rebuke is needed. We can't just love each other and not bring in um, a, a correction where there is sin. That doesn't happen in the church. The church has love for each other. Of course, this is fellowship, and that love also includes the... Um, Fear that this is a holy ground, the new temple of God, the new kingdom of God, and therefore we are not going to be irreverent towards the church of Jesus Christ. Because that irreverence will cost us like it cost um, Achan and Ananias and Sapphira. And then we have a unique goal. We have a unique goal. And there are many other characteristics of genuine fellowship of this koinonia. But I'm going to look at this one with you which reconnects with the word of God, a unique goal. What is the goal of the church? What is the goal of the church? Some churches think the goal of the church is to have buildings and other things is to have great programs. And others think is to have um, a great um, humanitarian outreach. What is the goal of the church? Think about that for a moment. Because our fellowship centers around this goal. There cannot be fellowship. Because it's fellowship is what? It's partnership. And that's what we see in the early church. It's partnership 
but that's by the way the word fellowship koinonia um, it's fellowship amongst genuine believers amongst those who were born again so that's why you see them giving that's why you see them preaching the gospel together that's why you see them involved in um, uh, in, in teaching and breaking of bread and in prayer they're partnering partnering together as the holy spirit is leading this this company this new godly company of saints to uh, to a certain goal uh, what is the goal what is the goal what are they partnering for well in romans 8 29 we're giving a specific goal for the church this is the only goal we have everything has to be done with this goal in mind fellowship is for the of the believers keeps always this goal in mind for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers that's the goal of the church to be like jesus that's it now that's cryptic it's very short but it involves a lot so we're like Jesus in loving each other. We're like Jesus in the pursuit of purity and holiness. And that's why there's church discipline. We're not going to just correct any little thing. We correct where there's sin. There was sin in the life of Ananias. And that sin, that leaven had entered the church. And that's why there's correction. And why is there correction? Why is there love? All of it is not an end in itself. Oh, it's so wonderful. Let's just love each other. That's the end. No, it isn't. That's why humanitarianism lacks, it falls short. The reason why we love each other and the reason why we uh, have discipline and, and carry out church discipline according to God's word is so that we become conformed to the image of Christ. That's the goal. That's why the Lord foreknew us. That's why he, he, he called us. That's why he justified us. That's why he glorifies us, so that we can be predestined to the image of Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn amongst many brethren. Why, do you, why is Jesus called the firstborn? If Jesus was the only son of God, he'd just be called the son of God. He could not be called firstborn. Right? I have a firstborn because I have two children. If I have one child, I, won't, I can't call him firstborn. Right? He's only one. The reason why he's called firstborn is because he has, God has many sons. And that's us, the church. That's the plan. That's the covenant of redemption that God, the triune God, conceived in eternity past and then brought into, into, uh, into completion and fulfilled it through Jesus Christ. Now we are beneficiaries of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace includes this, that you and I are becoming like Jesus Christ. So fellowship is the outworking of that wonderful process that is happening in all of us as we are being conformed. That means that everything that happens to you, whether it be COVID-19, whether it be loss of job, whether it be a disease, whether it be health situation, financial situation, everything in the child of God, they are never useless. They are never useless. They are used as strands in this perfect plan, the Holy Spirit takes each one of these strands and works them into your life to bring about this perfect plan. Conformity to the image of Christ. 
And while we're being conformed, we have fellowship. So the church, that the part of the church that is weak is receiving encouragement from the part of the church that is strong. The ones who are in need are receiving benefits from those who have more. The ones who are in need in prayer are receiving the blessing from those who are in who pray. So that we're encouraging one another. And both are being conformed to the image of Christ. We need each other. That's fellowship. It's partnership according to the directive of the Holy Spirit. He is reproducing this in us, this in us so that we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Fellowship is not an end in itself. We're not here just to enjoy each other. And then in the end, hopefully get to heaven. No, fellowship is proof that the Holy Spirit is working in us. So if I don't love the brethren, and I'm not, I'm not open to discipline and correction and rebuke, there is something unhealthy about me. One, I'm either lost. Two, I am disjointed from the body. A member of the body loves, and a member of the body accepts correction. Let the righteous strike me, as David said in the song. Let the righteous strike me. It will be like what? Ointment, like perfume on my head. My head will not reject it. David was an authentic servant of the Lord, and he accepted rebuke. And we know he did, because when Nathan approached him, the king, David could have had him killed. But he didn't. Why? Because he had the spirit of God, even though he was living in sin. And he accepted the rebuke. He humbled himself and once again was restored. That is fellowship. We need to love each other because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And he's causing us to do that. And we need to accept correction and rebuke. And discipline has to be a real part of the church. Because again, that's what the Holy Spirit does within us to keep us pure. And all for the reason of to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How wonderful. So koinonia, the church becomes the new holy ground. It's the new kingdom of God. It's the temple of God, not the temple of Jerusalem. God is saying, that's gone. It's obsolete. Temple sacrifices, the priesthood uh, from uh, the sons of Aaron, the holy place, it's gone. I'm going to make sure it's gone because in 70 AD, it was destroyed by the Romans. It's gone. There's a new temple. There's a new priesthood. There's a new altar. There's a new kingdom. This is the holy ground, the church, not the building, the people of God. This is koinonia. This is what David would prophesy. Oh, how wonderful when brethren dwell together in unity. And that dwelling together is not kumbaya time. All right. It is fellowship that is centered on love for each other and discipline with a common goal, the one goal, which is to become more like Christ. Will the plan work? Will the plan work? Philippians 1 verse 6. Let's read it and then we'll close in prayer. Philippians 1 6 says, for I am confident of this very thing. And this is Paul writing this from prison where you should have no confidence. You should be discouraged and just uh, disheartened with everything, the way things are going. I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Yes, the plan will work. 
because God started the plan. God conceived it. God is holding it up. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And the church will be presented with exceeding joy, blamelessly in the presence of God. She will be the bride without, a gar without garments of stained and blemish or, or wrinkled of any kind. She will be spotlessly presented because of the work of the Holy Spirit that is right now involved in our lives, making us more and more like Christ Jesus. What an amazing God. What an amazing plan. What a privilege to be part of the church. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. It's really remarkable that you are taking sinners and turning them into the likeness of your son. Who could do something like that? Lord, it's like going into a scrapyard and taking the most rusted piece of metal, a disregarded piece of junk, and turning it into a Ferrari. No one can do that. But you've done that. You've done it with people who are dead in their sin, were dead, who were dead in their sins, who were not seeking you, not calling on your name, not interested in you. We only sought for you because of something that we wanted. We wanted maybe money or maybe a girl or a guy in our lives. We wanted a family or we wanted a house. And that's why most people pray, not because they want you, but you change our hearts. You drew us to yourself. You did the miracle of miracles all through your son, Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, was treated as the vilest criminal, and then was brought back to life by your power because sin could not, a death could not hold him. He was sinless. And now his righteousness is imputed onto everyone who believes. And we've been made just and righteous in Christ Jesus. What an amazing privilege that now we can enjoy fellowship, koinonia. Koinonia that is marked by genuine love, fervent love, one for another, and an acceptance of discipline because we want to be in the plan of God, which is a holy church, a pure church, not one that makes room for sin. Thank you for this. And you're doing all of this in our lives as, because you are conforming us to Jesus Christ, your beloved son. He is your firstborn and we are your children because of what he did. And we praise you for this. We thank you for these truths. They gladden our hearts. They remove doubt. They take away the cobwebs from our minds. And we rejoice in you. And we pray for everyone who is in darkness, that you would draw them to yourself, oh God. Have mercy yet again, because your storehouse of mercy is unending. Have mercy yet again, and draw others, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you, my beloved. Let's uh, just take some time to... Uh,